This morning, as we continue in our series in the book of Philippians, Joy in the Journey, Paul is going to continue to talk to us about our confidence as he shifts from talking about our confidence in our calling to our confidence in our citizenship. Remember last time, Paul challenged us to be pursuing the prize, that personal relationship with Jesus, and now he reveals to us that there are two kinds of people, those who are not just for Jesus Christ, but those that are following Jesus Christ, and the second group are those who are living in opposition to the Lord. You see, they're both pursuing One is pursuing a personal relationship with Jesus. The other is pursuing the persecution of Jesus. Vastly different things that they are pursuing. And today as we ask ourselves the question, am I living in obedience or in opposition to Jesus Christ? We're also going to be reminded of the right response that you and I should have as Christians to those who are living in opposition to Jesus Christ. Turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 17. Philippians 3, 17. Dear brothers and sisters, pattern your lives after mine and learn from those who follow our example. For I have told you often before, and I say it again with tears in my eyes, that there are many whose conduct shows that they are really enemies of the cross of Christ. They are heading for destruction, and their God is their appetite They brag about shameful things, and they think only about this life here on earth. But we are citizens of heaven, where the Lord Jesus Christ lives. And we are eagerly waiting for him to return as our Savior. He will take our weak mortal bodies and change them into his glorious body like his own, using the same power with which he will bring everything under his control. Paul starts out here with the pattern of living. Who or what are we going to live for? Notice that Paul doesn't just give us principles for life. He provides a pattern for life. And that pattern is his own personal pursuit of Jesus Christ. He's not just mouthing a message. He's actually modeling it for the people that are following him. And he makes an incredibly bold statement here. Follow me. Now, why would Paul say that? Because he understands this, that the people we follow determines our future. Now, this is not the only place that Paul makes that statement. 2 Thessalonians 3, 7. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. 1 Thessalonians 1, 6. You become imitators of us and of the Lord. And 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, follow my example as I follow Christ. Paul is not being conceited here by telling us to follow the example. He is being caring. Because as I said, he understands that the people that we choose to model our life after will mold us. The people that we're following will determine our future. And many of us, we don't think about the example that we're setting because today in our culture, even in the church, we're living for self instead of for service. If you and I were living lives to really serve not just Jesus, but the body of Christ, we would, we would be asking ourselves the question, if I do these things, if I live this kind of a lifestyle, what will I be modeling for the people 
that are following me. And one of the questions that we need to start asking ourselves today is this. What model am I setting? What message am I sending? You see, Paul reveals here the reason that we are following these examples. Notice he says we're not just looking to them, we are learning from them. And I think every teacher would agree that there's a huge difference between people that are looking and people that are learning, right? Because something that is true about people that are learning, they're not just looking to that example, they're actually listening to that example and they're living out what they learn. And I think many of us today, we're looking to examples, but we're not really learning from those examples. So something that is true for every one of us is that we are both following an example and setting an example. We are both followers and we have a following, whether we recognize that we have a following or not. Now today, we're really into followings, right? How many friends have I got on Facebook? Maybe you got a blog. How many people are following that? How many people are following my tweets? We, we care a lot about people following us, but do we care about what they're following, the message and what we're modeling for them? And so I want to start first with who are you following? Who are you patterning your life after? Is it the party crowd or is it the people who are really pursuing the prize that we talked about last week? Are you following the faithful or the foolish? If you want to be a faithful person and not a foolish person, then you need to stop following fools. The old statement is so true. Show me your friends and I will show you your future, right? Because those are the people that you're listening to that message and they are molding and modeling you. Secondly, what example are you setting? How many of you right now in your walk with Jesus would be comfortable saying to somebody else, follow me as I follow Christ? Some of us, we've been Christians 10, 20 years. And we're like, uh, yeah, don't follow me. I'm not really, truly walking with Jesus step in step. So I think most of us would be more comfortable with this statement. Do as I say, not as I do. Right? That's not what Paul said. Does your talk match your walk? And so I want to ask us some challenging questions. And I'm going to pick on pastors first. Because they're called to be leaders. This is to myself and to fellow pastors that are listening online. Here's the question. What example are you setting as a pastor for your sheep? Parents, let me ask you this question. What example are you setting for your kids? Teachers, what example are you setting for your students? Businessmen, what example are you setting for your employees? Coaches, what example are you setting for your athletes? I'll never forget reading a story that a coach shared about a time when he was really frustrated in his coaching. I had a group of kids that, that really weren't completely committed on the court. Sometimes they'd show up late, they just sort of, you know, half-hearted into the game. And so he pulled them aside and he gave them this lecture and he talked to them about the importance of being completely sold out. When you're there, be all there. About their commitment. And then he made this statement to them. He said, 
It matters because your commitment on the court is going to translate to greater commitments later in life. One of the kids put their hand up. I'm a little frustrated because this was not a time to ask questions. This is time to listen. I'm lecturing right now, okay? He said, what? And the kid said, coach, I want you to understand I in no way at all try and disrespect you. But I got to ask, what do you know about commitment? You're on your third marriage. Here's the challenge. What are we modeling? Because here's the reality to life. We can be really committed to the game and not really committed to God. We can be committed to something that our society holds up as as incredibly valuable sports, totally sold out for sports, but not for my spouse. And what are we modeling to our kids? We're modeling that that, the things that really don't matter in life are the most important thing to me, and the things that are of the most value are the things that I don't cherish. We can compromise our convictions very quickly. To be very committed to things that really, in the big scheme of life, don't really matter. How many athletes have made the statement over the years, I don't want to be an example. I don't want to be a role model. I just want to live my life the way I want to live my life. And I know that the way I want to live my life, my lifestyle is a bad role model. And so here's what they say, don't follow me. But people still follow them. And many of you right now, you, you wouldn't consider yourself somebody that people would maybe be following. But you realize a lot of the people that are looking to us will never know. As Christians, we live in glass houses and people look right in. They, they know our profession. And the challenging question is, does our conduct match our confession? Because they're looking to us and sometimes we don't even realize that. And it's so true in parenting. I'll never forget as a young kid seeing a poster and there was a dad with a cigarette hanging out of his mouth and he just caught his son smoking and the the son had the cigarette hidden behind his back and the smoke was curling up over his head. You know how we think we're smart when we're kids and can't figure out why our parents find out about stuff, right? And the caption read this, do as I say, not as I do. Is that what we're modeling in the church today? Or like Paul, are we saying, follow me as I follow Christ? Only follow me if I'm following Christ. And I want to challenge you. Are the people that you're modeling your life after really passionately following Jesus Christ? Are they sold out for the Savior? I think if we want to change the culture in the church, and we want to change the next generation, then we have to model the message and stop just mouthing the message. Second point that Paul makes here is the problem. And the problem is a really huge problem. It is people that are serving self and not the Savior, and therefore they have become slaves of Satan. And there's a huge amount of debate here as to who are these people that Paul says are enemies of the cross of Jesus Christ. One thing is absolutely clear. And that is his appraisal of them, his assessment of them is absolutely disastrous. 
because their destiny is destruction. Paul is saying here, these are not the kind of people that you want to follow. And before we talk about their characteristics and the characteristics of those that we don't want to follow, we have to answer the question, how do we respond rightly to enemies of the cross? Do you notice here that Paul doesn't just share the truth? He shares the truth in tears. He is absolutely brokenhearted over those who are opposed to the cause of Jesus Christ. Let me ask you this question. When was the last time you wept for the wickedness in our community and in our world? When was the last time you were sorrowful over a society, especially in our country, that is turning more and more away from the Savior and turning more and more to Satan? When was the last time you prayed for people who are adamantly opposed to Christianity? You see, what happens for most of us is we just get mad. And there are a lot of us today, we are watching Fox News. I was talking to Michael Francis that was here. He says, I had to quit watching. I just started getting angrier and angrier. And there are many of us today that are watching Fox News, we're watching CNN. We're listening more to the media than we are to the master. And what's happening is we're just becoming angrier and angrier. And it breaks my heart to watch Christians become militant. Because here's what's happening. We have lost our compassion for the lost. We are becoming calloused for the lost. And if we're not careful, we will respond to the enemies of the cross the same way that the enemies of the cross respond to Jesus Christ, which is hurt and hate. And I'm watching a lot of hate and a lot of hurt coming out of the church. Not necessarily here, but the church in the United States. Now you need to understand why that's happening. Because we are basing our, our walk today on fear instead of faith. And many Christians today are putting fear to their feet, not faith. Anger is a protest. The reason your kids throw a temper tantrum when they can't get some candy, they want sugar, they didn't get their way, and they're getting angry because anger is a protest. How many of us today are protesting and how many of us today are praying? You see, most of us today, we're protesting out of fear instead of praying because of our faith. Can I remind you, the Apostle Paul, who's talking about the enemies of the cross, was an enemy of the cross. Can I remind you that before you were saved, you were an enemy of the cross of Jesus Christ. You were opposed to the work of Christ. You see, here's the reality. Paul on the road to Damascus got saved. And there are some people in your life, as you think about them, that you've written them off. You think, God can't save that person. Let me ask you, how many people in the church at Paul's, before his conversion, when he was Saul, how many people in the church do you think were protesting his persecution and how many were praying for his salvation? That's a haunting question. I I, I know what my flesh would want to do with a person like Paul that wanted to drag off men and women, followers of Jesus Christ, and put them in jail and orphan children. I know what my flesh would want to do. But the question is, am I living by the flesh or am I living by faith? And would my faith choose to pray when I want to protest? Would I be on my knees crying out for Jesus Christ to save someone like Saul? And I think many of us today have forgotten that Saul was an enemy of the cross. 
But you realize that even after Saul got saved, there were those in the church that wanted to have nothing to do with him because of fear. But there was a man that walked by faith named Barnabas, son of encouragement. And Barnabas chose to fight for Paul instead of fighting against Paul. And I want to ask you, where are you putting your energy in today? How much energy are you putting into protesting and posting on Facebook? And how much time and energy are you putting on praying to God the Father? Because the first characteristic that we see here of the bad example that we don't want to follow is they are enemies of the cross of Jesus Christ. That is specific and general. Specifically, Paul is talking about those who are publicly opposing Jesus. They're preaching against Jesus Christ. They're preaching against the cross and the grace and the gift of God and salvation. But you see, generally, this is anybody who is drawing people away from Jesus. And I want to ask you, in your life, the way that you're living your life, are you drawing people to the cross or are you pushing people away from the cross? The number one reason that people don't want to have anything to do with Christianity is hypocritical Christians. Are you living a holy life or a hypocritical life? And I'm not talking about being perfect here. But I am talking about you and I really selling out to Jesus Christ and allowing him to completely change our hearts and our lives. One of the phrases that I hear a lot today, and I've heard it for the last couple of years, and it's this. I love Jesus, but I cuss a little. And some of you, you've posted that because that's where you're at. And I understand that we all have sin areas in our life that we struggle with. The Bible talks a lot about the tongue and it talks a lot about seasoned speech, right? But can I ask you, what model are you setting when you say, I love Jesus, but I cuss a little? It's just the way it is. It's not the way that it should be. Can I ask you this? When Paul said, I follow me as I follow Christ, if we're following Jesus Christ, could you ever imagine Jesus saying, I love the Father, but I cuss a little? So, so why have we compromised that conviction in our life? Because we really don't want to deal with those things. And what happens? People see it hypocritical. Because what did Jesus say? If you love me, obey me. Don't, don't just say you love me. Actually live out that love for me. Allow me to change the areas in your life that are areas of hypocrisy and not areas of holiness. Now, Paul makes it very, very clear here that the problem in his culture, the problem in our culture, the problem in our country today is a faith issue, not a financial issue. I am tired of listening to all the people in economics who think that if we had more money, we would have less mess. That's what they get paid to do. But I'm here to tell you the truth. The problem in our nation today is a faith issue, not a financial issue. A couple of weeks ago, a group of people in New York City passed legislation to make abortion more readily available. Like our country needs more death, especially death of our children, right? 
And they celebrated that because they, they think that they're bringing great change. They're bringing change, but it's destructive, not constructive. You see, Jesus in John 10.10 gave us the litmus test for all of life. He said, I have come that you may have abundant life, but the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. Here's the dividing line, the litmus test for life. Is it life or death? When you're in relationships with people, when people make decisions, when legislation is passed, does it bring life or does it bring death? Because here's the reality today. You're either working for the Savior or you're working for Satan. And some people say that's too strong. I'm just, I'm just living for self. Well, we become pawns of Satan. It's also here that we see that their destiny is destruction. And notice here that Paul says many are enemies of the cross of Jesus Christ. This is the majority. Jesus said it too when he said the minority... And the majority are separated by the roads that they are going to be on. That the way to life is narrow and the road to destruction is wide. If ACDC got anything right, it is their song, Highway to Hell. And you think it's got a real good beat. Have you ever stopped to really consider what a highway is? When was the last time you were broken over the masses that are going to hell? Because of a rejection of Jesus Christ. And that destruction is a final destruction, but it's a destruction that starts every time that they sow their life towards sin. Because sin always brings death. And we see these destructive death things throughout their life. Death of relationships. Whether that's their wife, their kids, whether that's a husband. We see all these different things that lead up to this final decision that I'm going to reject Jesus Christ. And here's what you need to understand. Your decision for or against Jesus Christ, that decision will determine your destination, heaven or hell. But are you broken over that? When was the, the last time this week? Did, was, there, was there ever a time this week that there was a heaviness on your heart to pray for the lost? To pray for people that don't know Jesus. And we have just allowed our hearts to become callous in the church. Well, we just, we're just mad at them. If, if they would just go away. In fact, some of us think this way. If, if they could just form their own country and live over there, we'd be fine. Let me ask you. Does that really solve the real problem? Is the solution just to put on blinders? No, it's to share the message of Jesus Christ. It also says here that their God is their stomach. Now, Paul's not so much talking about gluttony here as he is talking about feeding the flesh when it comes to sin. Sin always makes the flesh feel good for a season until the poison sinks in and you start to pay the price for that sin. And what he's saying here is there are people today who are living their lives trying to get a feel-good. They're trying to feed their flesh. Their God has become their feelings. Now think about this. People tell me all the time, man, the Word of God, I read that, I don't get it. It it just doesn't apply to our, our lives today or our culture. What's one of the number one shifts that we've seen in our culture? It's all about our feelings, right? And if you offend my feelings, then I'm going to be really upset. 
And isn't it amazing how there's been this shift towards feelings? Why? Because we've become a country that is feeding our flesh. It matters the feel good. And so what are we worshiping today? Our feelings. We're worshiping the things that feed our flesh. What he's saying here is the God that they worship is all of the things that will feed their flesh. He goes on to say, their glory is their shame. Instead of being embarrassed over their sin, they're celebrating their sin. Think of the lawmakers in New York. They are championing and celebrating and congratulating themselves for passing legislation that doesn't bring life, it brings death. Think about all of the people today who are living a lifestyle opposed to the cross of Jesus Christ and they are celebrating that lifestyle. Think of all the parades that we have in our country where this is, this is now the cool thing. This is something that's awesome. This is something you need to accept and you need to celebrate. And here's what's interesting. The culture is trying to drag the church into their celebration of sin. And if we don't celebrate their sin, then we're bigots. Now we could talk about a homosexual lifestyle. And believe you me, there will come a time where a pastor saying from the pulpit that a homosexual lifestyle is opposed to the lifestyle that Jesus Christ intended for you and I when we were created. That will be classified as hate speech. Not free speech, hate speech. But here's the reality. God's word doesn't change. And in the church... We, we are quick to talk about a homosexual lifestyle that is opposed to the plan of God. But are we quick to talk about a heterosexual lifestyle that is opposed to the will of God? Living together before we get married. Last 40 years, gone from 10% to almost 85%. It's just common in our culture. It's just what people do. I mean, how is she going to know if you're compatible, right? You don't want to make a commitment... You want to find out if you're compatible. Now, when it comes to having to buy a vehicle, we got to make a commitment before we find out about compatibility. But relationships, well, they're not as important as vehicles, right? But here's the thing. You'd be amazed at the number of young couples that have gotten upset with me over this issue. And here's what they want in their heart. They want to live together, and most of them will say it's a financial issue. And they'll, they'll promise me, you know, we're, we're, we're not involved intimately. Really? You're at the height of your hormones, living together, and that's not what's going on? Even if that's true, we're to avoid the appearance of evil. Again, let's go back to what model are we setting for the people that are looking to us? What about those kids in junior high and in high school and in grade school, and they're going, hey, look, they live together. They, they do things opposed to the plan of God, and, and yet we have a big church wedding and we celebrate it. See, here's the issue in our culture today. Instead of confessing our sin, we want to celebrate our sin. And we, we, we are adamantly opposed when it comes to homosexual lifestyle that's opposed to Jesus, but what about the heterosexual lifestyle that's opposed to Jesus? You see how these things start to creep into the church, and pretty soon, what are we doing? We're celebrating sin instead of confessing sin. He goes on and he says their mind is on earthly things. How much of your time do you spend investing in eternity versus in earthly things? 
Where are you investing your time, your talents, your treasure? Now, there's a certain amount of earthly living that we've got to do, right? But do you see that the greater calling here is the eternal? That we're not just going to work to earn a paycheck, but we're going there to develop these relationships with people where we can share Jesus with them. We can pray with them in the hard parts of life. We can lead them to the cross of Jesus Christ and away from that lifestyle that is opposed to the Lord. But how many of us are living for the eternal versus the earthly? You see, it's here that Paul reminds us of the people that we should be patenting our life after. As he talks about number three, the promise. And the promise is this, for those of us who have placed our our faith in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone, we have the promise of a home in heaven. And Paul calls that a citizenship in heaven. As opposed to those that are living in opposition to the cross of Jesus Christ, their citizenship is here, our citizenship is in heaven. Paul is using a very understandable term here, citizenship. And it's amazing because it applied 2,000 years ago and it applies today. Philippi was a Roman colony. In other words, it was a Rome away from Rome. The people understood Roman citizenship. It was one of the most desired citizenships of the day. Why? Because Rome was powerful. You could go anywhere. You could do anything as a Roman citizen. But as a Roman citizen, you understood Roman law. You understood Roman custom. You understood Roman speech. You understood Roman dress. Roman citizenship dictated every aspect of your life. And Paul is saying here, don't forget your heavenly citizenship. That you and I are living based not by Roman law, but we are living by heavenly law, by God's law. That we need to be cultivating a culture that represents our citizenship in heaven. So how do you become a citizen of heaven? Several years ago, I applied for citizenship here in the United States And that was a sure, fun process. Some of you have gone through that process. And one of the things that had to happen is I had to fill out a bunch of paperwork, a bunch of forms. I had to pay a huge amount of money. Uh, Every form had a fee. I had to be interviewed. I had to be tested to see if I could speak English, which the guy was a little embarrassed by that. But anyway, being English and all... um, I had to go through all of these hoops and all of these steps, and finally they granted me citizenship. But for the vast majority of you, how did you become a citizen? You were born. You didn't do anything. You were just born here. You know what the Bible says in order to become a citizen of heaven? We have to be born again. That means that we have to place our faith in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone. You see, only Jesus came and died on the cross as a substitute for sin. He gave his life as a sacrifice. And his blood didn't just cover sin, it conquered sin. So that you and I could become saints. You see, here's the reality. When we admit our sin and we cry out for Jesus Christ to save us from our sin, it's in that moment that we not only become children of God, but citizens of heaven. And Paul is saying, as a citizen of heaven, conduct yourself that way. Let me ask you. Does your conduct 
match your citizenship? Are you a citizen of heaven or just a citizen of here? Has there been a point in your life where you've admitted your sin and cried out for Jesus Christ to save you from your sin? You see, the reality is this. If you've been born twice, you'll die once. If you've only been born once, you will die twice. What do I mean by that? If you have been born once, just a physical birth, then you will die not just a physical death, but a spiritual death. You'll die twice. But if you've been born twice, born once physically, and second, born spiritually, born again, as a new creation in Jesus Christ, then you will only die once a physical death. You see, you and I as citizens of heaven need to wrestle through a very challenging part of life, and that is how do we live here while being a citizen of heaven? And it is becoming increasingly, increasingly challenging to be a citizen of heaven, to have your mind on the things of God, and still live in the corruption of this world. So how do we do that? Paul gives us the answer here. He says, keep your eyes on Jesus and remember that Jesus Christ is coming back. Now I want to show you a couple pictures. And these are from when we were over in Israel. And if you uh, go with Angel and I next year, uh, January 27th through February 6th, Uh, 2020, you will get to experience these places. This is a picture to the right of the Temple Mount looking back towards the Mount of Olives. Now, all of those buildings, if you look to the left or if you see the sun there and you go to the left and you you see that hilltop, that's the Mount of Olives. Why is that significant? Because after Jesus was raised from the dead, he did life with his disciples. They sung a hymn. They went out to the Mount of Olives and he ascended into heaven. Do you realize that long before Arnold said, I'll be back, Jesus said, I'll be back? And I want you to hear it in that voice, okay? Because here's the reality. This is not dread for us as believers. This is a delight. Can I ask you this question? Did you think one time this week about the return of Jesus Christ? Was there some time in the last month? What about this year so far? Was there a point in this year where you've thought about Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior, is coming back? Remember last week when we talked about leaving things in the past, I mentioned there are some things that we need to forget that we tend to remember and some things we should remember that we tend to forget. This is one of the things we should remember that we constantly forget. Jesus Christ is coming back. And Scripture says he ascended from here and he will return to this point. Now I want you to look at this next picture. This is standing on the Mount of Olives looking back at the Temple Mount. Do you know how amazing that is to stand on the Mount of Olives and be like, my Lord and my Savior is coming back and all of this mess is going to be changed. You and I need that perspective. Now you'll notice the dome there, that golden dome. We'll talk about that in a little bit. That's the Dome of the Rock, a Muslim mosque. To the right of that, and that whole wall is the eastern wall. To the right of that, there's a little kind of hump in the wall, and that is the eastern gate. It's bricked up. We'll talk about that in a moment. Down below the wall are all kinds of uh, graves, and we'll talk about that. Now let's jump up onto the Temple Mount at the eastern gate. If you go to that next picture. This is standing at the Temple Mount, looking at that eastern gate. Why is the Golden Gate significant? 
This is the gate that was opened up and it, and it leads right up to the temple. It's positioned in such a way that the light would come in the morning and they would open up the temple and that light would come and it would start to warm up. The sun would warm up the temple. Scripture tells us that Jesus Christ is coming back. The light of the world will come back through this gate. Now, after the crusaders were defeated by the Muslims and they were kicked out of the Holy Land, there was a Muslim sultan that knew about the prophecy of Jesus Christ coming back. And so in a defensive plan, he had the eastern gate bricked up. Okay? Can I ask you a question? Do you really think that bricks are going to keep out the creator of the universe? I mean, it's almost laughable, isn't it? But do you see how the world thinks? I can prevent Jesus and I can stop his plan. Do you realize as you read your Bible, that has been Satan's goal since he slithered into the garden. I'm going to, I'm going to pervert. I'm going to prevent God's plan from coming. I'm going to wipe out the Jews. There can be no Messiah. I'm going to kill baby Jesus through Herod. I'm going to constantly prevent the plan of God. Has he succeeded yet? No. Will he succeed? No. And I mentioned last week, when he reminds you of your past, you need to remind him of his future because he has no future. And you have no past. If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ and you've confessed that sin and been forgiven by God. Now you always need a backup plan. In case the first plan doesn't work. Like in case the bricks don't keep Jesus out. I mean, seriously, Jesus descends onto the Mount of Olives. Oh, they bricked it up like he doesn't already know about it, right? I bet they're laughing about it still. This happened hundreds of years ago. But here's the backup plan. Because a Jew cannot walk across graves, they buried all of their dead outside the wall. Let me ask you, do you think that's going to prevent Jesus from coming back? Isn't it amazing how today in our country we've got all these people that are trying to prevent the plan of God? And they think they're succeeding. But the truth is they will fail. You see, this Temple Mount is absolutely significant, and here's why. Do you remember when Abraham went in obedience to sacrifice his son Isaac? Mount Moriah? Right here. And what did God do? God provided a substitute sacrifice, right? This is where Solomon built the first temple that was destroyed by the Babylonians. This is where the second temple was built that was later destroyed by the Romans, This is where when Jesus Christ cried out, it is finished, and the temple veil was torn in two, and we now have full access to the Holy of Holies. This is where that occurred, where that veil was torn in two. A couple weeks ago, Pastor Ben was preaching, and he talked about Peter, and he was talking about the early church and the start of the church. And if you didn't get a chance to listen, phenomenal sermon. Go online. It's archived. Go ahead and listen to that message. But do you realize where the early church was started? I'm going to show you a picture of it. It's the southern steps. We'll jump to the next picture here. See, it talks about Peter going to the house. Anytime we talk about going to the house, whose house? Not Peter's house, God's house, the temple. And there's only one place at the temple where you can have open conversations. It's where when Mary and Joseph left Jesus, where they found him on the southern steps, debating and talking with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the scribes of the day. Peter was here when the Holy Spirit came down and he preached powerfully and 3,000 people were saved. This is where the church got started, right here on, on the temple steps. Do you notice that everything revolves around this mountain of God? 
from Abraham's first obedience and the start of God's people to the beginning of the church to the rightful reign of Jesus Christ. Now let's go to the next picture. This is the mosque that I mentioned, the Dome of the Rock, the third most holiest site in Islam. And what's interesting here is that they are not worshiping the one true God, right? They're worshiping Allah. Now, do you remember when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness? One of the temptations, the last, is Satan took him to the pinnacle of the temple. Imagine the temple being there in the highest point of the temple. And he said, look at all of the kingdoms of the world. I'll give you everything if you would worship me. Now, it all belonged to Jesus anyway. It wasn't given anything that he could give. Jesus didn't bow down and worship, and neither should we. But what's there today? It's not a temple to worship the one true God. What are we worshiping? And again, Muslims get militant when you talk about this, but it's, it's the truth. What are they worshiping? You're either serving the Savior or you're serving Satan. And right now, Satan's living out his plan to get people to worship him. And we're getting angry about it. But what we need to be doing is we need to be praying. Because here's the amazing thing. There are so many Muslims today that are coming to faith in Jesus Christ. God is at work in those communities. And when they step away from, from their beliefs religiously as a Muslim, they are completely outcast. They literally are giving up father and mother, son, daughter, everything to serve Jesus Christ. I want you to look at this next picture. This is the Western Wall. This is the closest that the Jews can get to the temple and the temple mount. And so they go there all day long. doesn't matter when you go, you will see people that are there and they are praying. And in the cracks of the wall, they'll take their little prayers written on paper and they'll stuff them into the wall and it's just filled with all these little notes to God, so to speak. But here's the sad reality. Most of these Jews, ultra-Orthodox Jews, don't believe in the Messiah. And it's an amazing thing to stand there as a believer in Jesus Christ and look down and to see people that are praying and to see people up top that are praying and neither one of them recognize Jesus as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And so I want to challenge you as you and I think about praying, and you can shoot to the next picture, you have to wear a head covering to be able to go and to pray. And we had opportunity to go and to just pray. And part of that prayer was just praise. Jesus, you're coming back. In all of this mess, you're going to figure it out. And Jesus, I don't want to put all of my energy into trying to, to fix the mess. That's your job. I don't want to put all of my energy into protesting the mess. I'm going to give that to you. Help me to live a life of praise and a life of prayer because here's how you and I live as citizens of heaven here. The word of God, worship, prayer, reminding ourselves that Jesus Christ is coming back. You see, the very last thing that he talks about here is the power. The power to change us and the power to be in charge. And it's an amazing change that he talks about, the resurrection of the dead, that these bodies that are so susceptible to sin, that 
are so susceptible to disease, decay, and death will be raised incorruptible. That's an amazing, amazing thought. In the twinkling of an eye, we will be changed if we have placed our faith in Jesus Christ. But can I remind you that that change is already occurring? That Jesus Christ is in the process of changing our lives. And if you claim to be a Christian and there's no change in your life, there's no change in your attitudes, no change in your actions, I would challenge you to take a look at your confession. Because a true, authentic confession for Jesus Christ always involves, over time, change. And so I want to ask you this question. What are you allowing to change your life? Is it Christ or is it the culture? Lastly, it says that Jesus Christ is in control. And some days it doesn't feel like Jesus is in control. But can I remind you when Jesus walked on earth? He walked on water. We got to go out on the Sea of Galilee on a boat. And just for a moment, just imagining Jesus just walking towards his disciples. Can you imagine that? See, Jesus Christ was in charge of the elements that he had created. Jesus Christ cast out demons. He was in charge and still is in charge over spiritual things. Jesus Christ healed people. There were so many places we went. It was like, oh, this is where the guy was healed of lame. This was the blind man. This was this, this, this. Jesus healed people. He had control over disease and sickness. Jesus Christ was raised to life. He has the power over death. How much of our life do we spend trying to be in control? I know I have a control problem. I like to control things. But I've noticed something in my life. When I try to control relationships, when I can try to control things in the church, when I can try and try to control ministry, when I try to control my own life, I just create a mess. But most of us, we are so afraid of not being in control. Because we think that, that, that it'll turn out well when, when we're in control. But here's the reality. Jesus Christ is in control. The question is, have you given him control of your life? Or are you still wrestling with Christ, trying to control everything? Because church, here's the challenge for us. Who are we really following today? And what example are we setting for the people that are following us? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time together. Thank you for how you challenge our hearts and you encourage us. I thank you for the reminder today we need this. Jesus is coming back. And Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, is fully and firmly in control, even when it doesn't look like it. So, Father, help us to live with that hope, with our eyes fixed on heaven. Help us to represent ourselves as citizens of heaven, not just citizens here. For we pray these things in your name. Amen. Let's be dismissed.